Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. This past weekend, we got a chance to visit New York Comic Con and interview some of our favorite guests about their NYCC experiences. But as you know, cons are very, very loud, which can sometimes prove difficult for recording. So before we begin today's episode, here are just a few of our most audible conversations from NYCC 2019. Juan Doe comic artist on Strayed for Dark Horse Comics. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to meet you in person. Obviously, Strayed is out. You want to talk to us a little bit about it, what you're doing here at Comic-Con, how you're promoting it? Yes, so uh, Strayed is the the latest book uh, that I'm working on. It's uh, out at Dark Horse. Got the first couple of issues are uh, are done. It's a story about an astral projecting cat and uh, stoner who are working with the military industrial complex to try and find new sources uh, of resources for humanity. But what we find out is that this military industrial complex is not very nice. So our cat is uh, kind of being used, but he ends up being the hero of our story, and his name is Lou, so. (laughs) You're the artist on the book. Do you have experience drawing cats before? Yes, plenty, because I grew up with cats. <laughs> and uh, always sketching cats and drawing cats. They're, they're really beautiful creatures, and they're awesome to draw. So when I found out about this story, it was very natural for me to kind of gravitate towards it and, and absolutely want to do it, so absolutely. What are the goals for an artist when they come to Artist Alley? Like, what are you looking to do? What are you hoping to do? Yeah, I mean, it I definitely varies, I think, you know, depending on what you're doing. and. For me, in, in particular, it's obviously to meet fans and also to sort of go out and meet artists that I love and respect and be able to see what they're up to and to you know, catch up a little bit. Since most of us, we work alone at home, we don't really get to, to see each other a lot except at these, at these conventions. So I love Artist Alley. So. Is there anything that specifically has been happening around this Comic-Con that excites you or that you've heard about or anything that makes this one special? Well, for me, obviously, having uh, my book straight out I also have two other books that are on the market, uh, Dark Arc, which is on volume four with Cullen Bunn at Aftershock Comics, as well as my first creator-owned book, Bad Reception, which I'm writing and drawing, and that's on issue two. So this has been a pretty crazy convention for me since I've got three books out at once, and it's been a lot of interaction, a lot of dynamics, you know, but it's been absolutely fantastic. And you're based in Japan. What's it like? going from Japan to here, I'm assuming that flight is really long. Like, what's the difference between the cons here versus Japan? Yeah, I mean, in, in Japan, obviously, they have their, their own versions of this with, the, with the, the manga conventions. And those things are massive and huge as well. Uh, but it's definitely different. You know, I do do some, like, Artist Alley stuff in Japan uh, that's Marvel-oriented, DC-oriented. So I get to do, like, cool superhero commissions. Uh, and in terms of traveling, you know, the worst part about it is like the jet lag. The actual time that I'm flying is fine. I just watch movies, you know, the whole time. But uh, yeah, I mean, I only come out a couple times a year, uh, mostly to do New York Comic Con and Heroes Con in the summer. 
For those new comic artists and writers who come to Comic-Con, what are some pro tips? What are some things you should do? What are some things you shouldn't do when you come to maybe a Comic-Con and you're trying to network, trying to meet people? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I would say like if you're an artist, because um, I've seen this a lot where artists come and they'll show you sketches and they'll pitch you an idea of what they're working on. But the, the best thing is to try to have something that's concrete and finished so that you know the person that's viewing it can sort of see what it, what it is that you're trying to do and where it's going. Um, you know, so it's, it's just a matter of like maybe doing some research and kind of studying who you may want to talk to, you know, and, and be cool about it. But um, if it's something that you really love, man, you know, don't ever give up. You know, talk to different artists, talk to different writers, ask them about their perspectives on things. Most of us are pretty much open, you know, like I'll answer anyone's questions, you know, and I think most of us are exactly the same way, you know. Second to last question, it's called, you know, Artist Alley. Why isn't there a bigger representation of writers? Well, I think they are here. They just don't need a... <laughs> <laughs> the branding? They, they don't need, they're so big, you know, the, 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 the comic book industry is, you know, is definitely powered by really amazing writers who are coming up with fantastic ideas, you know, and they're basically sculpting the direction of what we're doing here. Uh, and I think at this point, we definitely see that comic books, it's the big two, it's Marvel and DC, and then we have this sort of amazing independent side of it that's bigger and, and larger than it's ever been with so many different voices and, and different creators. So, I mean, obviously the, the writers are, are fantastic and they allow us with the artists to collaborate and create these beautiful, amazing stories. So, writers get all the love. <laughs> love it. Last question, do you want to just plug one more time, maybe shout out your Twitter handle? Absolutely. So, Strayed, issue two is out now. It's out monthly, it's five issues. Dark Arc number one just came out this week. That's also five issues. Bad Reception number two came out last week. That's also five issues. So for the next three to four months, I'll have like three, four issues. I mean, three issues out on the stands. Uh, and yeah, you can reach me anytime at Twitter. It's at Juan Doe, no space. And uh, yeah, hit me up. Thank you, Juan. Thank you. Right, have a good Comic-Con. Appreciate it. Carlos Gifoni, comic writer on Strayed for Dark Horse Comics. Tell us about Strayed. We obviously interviewed you and had a whole episode about it, but for those who maybe haven't listened to that, um, tell us about Strayed, what it's all about, and what you're doing to promote it here at NYCC. Yeah, so um, Strayed is about an astral traveling cat, and uh, his owner is this genius who creates a translator device to communicate with him. And of course, this is in the distant future. The military is using them to find new planets and colonize them. And that's how the adventure for Strayed begins. I'm doing a Dark Horse panel on Sunday that's called Peeling the Layers. I also did uh, two signings. I did a signing at the Dark Horse booth and I did a signing at Artist Alley. And I've been in Artist Alley as much as I can. Juan Do, the artist, has a booth there, as well as Alexis Sirith, who I'm working on another book with. So I've been bouncing around and, uh, you know, promoting the book that way. You're getting drinks with, you know, writers and artists and friends at night. How do you keep your energy up? So even if you go out at night, make sure you get at least six, seven hours of sleep. So that's one. Uh, the second, eat vegetables. So I had a salad for lunch. If you eat all the junk food that's usually at the con, that's going to completely destroy you. Um, so yeah, those are the two biggest things. And uh, yeah, having good shoes. What is special about this year's NYCC? Is there anything that's happening that you've heard about? Anything you're particularly excited about? Obviously, you're on panels. Yeah. What would you say? Uh, yeah, William Gibson is uh, speaking at uh, um, in, in like two hours. So you're going? I'm, I'm definitely. That's the one thing that I have in my in my 
a list of things I wanted and like must do, you know. So I, I mean, I grew up on, on his books and I'm really excited to, to see. How do you prioritize your time? Do you have like a, a spreadsheet or you just kind of wing it? No, I have a, a Word document uh, that, I, that I took screenshots of in case the service didn't work here. That's in my Google Drive. And I just have the things that I want to go to and I prioritize according to, you know, what, what else is going on. Um, so I've been prioritizing spending time at the tables, doing the signings and all that. So I've actually have been to no panels. So that will be probably my one panel that I'll go to that I won't uh, be part of. You mentioned this is your first time with your own book here. What was the time you spent at other cons before this and how has that helped you? Did you come to cons? Did you network? Did that help build, get you to the point where you're at now? Yeah, so yeah, I, I, I've been to as many as I could have gone to. So I've been to uh, Emerald City, C2E2, San Diego a few times, Heroes uh, twice now, and then New York Comic Con. I think this is my third or fourth time. Um, so yeah, that also, two things. I Once I started to look at what people were doing to sell their stuff, so what the setup is for the tables and that kind of stuff, and kind of make notes of what was working. Um, and also I, I make notes of like, oh, who looks like they're actually moving books and who doesn't look like they're moving as many. And I noticed that sometimes at the artist alley, um, artists would have a table and they'll just be down drawing and making no eye contact and no one talks to them. And then you talk to them and they're like, oh, I've only sold like five issues or whatever. Um, and then if you're engaged, just saying hi, just being nice, making conversation, um, it seems like you do a lot better, which makes sense. You know, if you're nice to people, they want to be nice to you. So. What advice would you give to those writers or artists who are out here trying to meet, you know, other artists and writers just like you did? What would you say? What are the things you should do? What are the things you should not do? Yeah, I actually have follow-up uh, advice from what I gave you on the, on the last show <laughs> after experiencing this side a little bit. So, um, A, try to have finished work because you can say, hey, I'm a writer, but if you don't have finished pages um, that look like a comic book, then you're really not a comic book writer yet, you know, and, and that that's the thing that, you know, you have to have and make sure you show it, you know, you then you can show it to people. When you show it to people, make sure that, you, that your pitch is about two sentences long, 20 seconds, max. Because, you know, if you start speaking like you're, you know, people are tired, it's loud in here, there's lights, it's just... Um, it's not somewhere where you can listen to someone for like two, three, four, five minutes, you know? Um, and I've had that experience recently of someone that pitched me for like 10 minutes and they would just, oh, and this is this other book idea. And I'm like, oh, thank you. I hope you have a good con. And they didn't get, so learn to read people too. Get the message that, hey, it's time for me to let other people come and talk to, to the creator. Uh, but once you, if you can get those two things, then, you know, talk to the people you admire. Uh, if you happen to uh, be lucky enough to meet an editor, show them the stuff, get their information. Don't give them a bunch of books. Uh, get their cards, send them PDFs, try to establish a connection that way. Follow them on social media. Um, and that's kind of like what I would recommend, you know. So don't be annoying. <laughs> Second to last question. This book is about cats. One, do you think that gives you a competitive advantage against all these other books that are not about cats? Because people love cats, love animals. Second thing, have you thought about a marketing uh, concept where maybe you just let a couple cats out onto the floor here? <laughs> that would be great. Uh, I don't think they would allow me to get my cat in here. Otherwise, I would love to uh, just fill the whole booth with cats, just purring and we're kind of like a cat cafe, but right at the Comic-Con. That would be a great experience. Uh, so maybe I'll, I'll see who I can uh, convince that that's a good idea in the future. Um, and uh, then as far as your other question goes, um, 
it's been really interesting. So one thing that I noticed at the booth is that I get a lot of uh, um, more like teenagers, younger people, as well as like, uh, you know, people that usually go for comics that are a little older because they're saying, oh, it's a Dark Horse book, it's Juan Doe. But the younger people are very much attached, uh, attracted to the cat. And again, I said this many times, but that wasn't intentional. I didn't put it because I wanted to sell more books. I put it because the book was about a cat, you know, and it just happened to work out. Um, but um, so, yeah, from now on, I'm, uh, no one else can do this, only me, but I'm going to have cats on every cover that I do for my future comic books. Love it. All right, last uh, and certainly not least, can you shout out any last plug? Obviously, straight, anything that's coming up, your Twitter handle, where can people find you? Yeah, so my Twitter is the best place to find me. That's at carlosgifoni.com. I mean, sorry, at carlosgifoni on Twitter, but carlosgifoni.com is my website, and that's C A R L O S G I F F O N I. Uh, that's the best place. And then I have. I've said this on Twitter, I have two books coming next year, but they're not announced yet, so I can talk about them, but there's gonna be plenty of stuff coming from me um, in the future. All right, man, well, good luck with the rest of your con. Thanks, man. Thank you, cheers. Yeah, man, All right. good talking Thanks. to you guys. Man. You too. Chris Fernandez, editor and CSO at Mad Cave Studios, and Chris Sanchez, assistant editor at Mad Cave Studios. Chris and Chris, how's it going? How's your uh, Comic-Con experience so far? I think the best one so far. Yeah, we've really been killing it these last four days, and uh, it's been going, doing a good time. All right, so you guys are here promoting Mad Cave. Uh, tell us about the books you're excited about. Tell us about what, like, the product you're actually promoting. Right now we're really focusing on Show's End, which came out in August. It follows Lorelai. Uh, she's a 12-year-old girl who escapes from her house to join a traveling freak show. Um, twist is, when she gets there, she realizes she's actually the most freakish one at the show. So we're really behind that book, and the, uh, the writer, Anthony Cleveland, he's a maniac in like the best way, so we're super excited. Yeah, we're also really excited about Battle Cats Volume 2, which you can actually put it right now, um, the trade at least, and we're super, super proud of that book. The art team kills it on it. Mark is doing the story he really wanted to tell with Battle Cats on it. It is excellent. How did you get here, and what was that look? So we're all from the South Florida area, predominantly in Miami weird journey to get to where we are now. Uh, my friend Alex, uh, who's now our publisher here, uh, was originally hired to do something else entirely. Brought me on because he knew I'm a huge like nerd for everything. Uh, and four years later, here we are. I was an uh, office assistant, and then I became the social media manager, and then I became an editor somehow. How does promoting from an actual comic book company's perspective differ than, say, like an artist downstairs or a writer? So we're definitely promoting the brand as a whole. Um, I mean, we definitely do our part to uplift to the talent that we work with because uh, nobody gave us like a, a manual on how to do this. So we learned the hard way and we kind of want to pass that along by promoting the, the talent that we work with. But it's really important for people to recognize Mad Cave as a brand. Yeah, and I think it's similar in the ways that it's all about identity and trying to find that is really what should be unique about the company. Do you strategize goals before you come out? Are you like, okay, we're going to do this, this, and this, and where do you feel like you stand this time around? Are you feeling good? I'm feeling really good. We do uh, you know, set some goals for ourselves before every con, especially New York because it's such a massive con. Uh, I will say that we underestimated ourselves this year, and uh, we're really proud of what we've been able to accomplish so far. Yeah, we're settling out a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we'll probably be sold out. Yeah, by the end of the show, by the end of probably middle of next, of tomorrow, we'll be gone with a lot of stuff. Is there anything that's happening at NYCC this year that's particularly excites you? Obviously, besides your own company, your own 
product. Is there anything that's been happening that you guys have seen or that you're just excited about? I can speak for myself. I'm really learning a lot about the YA market and a lot of graphic novels that I wasn't aware of. I've been sitting in on a lot of panels. Uh, that stuff's got me really excited for the future of Mad Cave and even for myself like as a reader personally. Yeah, especially a lot of different companies showing up and independent-wise uh, going different ways through distribution and finding new ways to market comics. I think it's a really, really special time to be in comics right now. For aspiring writers who maybe want to work for Mad Cave or just in general trying to push their book, what's some advice you would give? What are some things that they should do and what are some things that they should definitely not do? I'll try to keep this one simple because it, it can be a complicated answer, but I would say to don't do too much. Try to stay within some bounds, you know, try to set some rules for yourself as far as like world building or whatever the story is working on and don't go too big unless you're like amazing but yeah always hone your craft really uh we were talking uh about panels uh and we saw a panel the other day that was like always constantly hone your skill and get better and really really be about the craft about the comic and definitely don't go into comics thinking oh my comic's gonna be a tv script or i'm gonna get it picked up Really, if you're in it for comics, you have to be in it to love it. What's the secret to maintaining your endurance? Obviously, you're here all day long. It's super tiring. you got to talk to tons of people. It's overwhelming. How do you keep your energy up? The blackest of black iced coffee. That's, that's my secret. <laughs> yeah, gel soles for your shoes. Ooh, yeah. You plugged kind of what you're working on now. What's coming up? What do people have to look forward to? Tell us where we should find you, all that kind of stuff. Cool. So... Just in the short term, we have Woven Heart releasing in October, on Halloween actually. A couple weeks after that, we're releasing RV9. And a month later, we're getting our wrestling series, Over the Ropes, off the ground. I'm super, I'm working on that one right now, and I'm super excited about that. And you can find us at Mad Cave Studios on every social media platform. And as far as like our books are concerned, you can go to your local comic shop first and foremost, ask for Mad Cave. Or you can head up to our website, madcavestudios.com, and Comixology. Yeah, he's kind of took everything, but I can tell you that if you follow our social medias and our website, uh, there is an announcement coming out uh, later this month or ne early next month that is uh, going to be really fun. Is there a particular cosplay costume you've seen that has excited you, that stood out? Hmm, I just took a picture of uh, some guys from NWO, if you guys are familiar with like 90s wrestling, so that always gets me excited. There was a huge BoJack one. <laughs> That was wild. It was, he was like 10 foot tall. I'm all about his project. You guys have not been on the show before. We always ask the question, if you could have lunch or dinner with any writer, living or dead, and take them to any fast food restaurant, which would you take them to? Hmm, this is weird because he, if he's not a vegetarian, he's a vegan, Grant Morrison. Where would you take him? Which one has a vegetarian option? Burger King has that Impossible Burger, I guess. That works. I would probably do Tilly Walden. I love her books. I love YA books especially, and Tilly Walden is doing amazing stuff. I have no idea what her dietary habits are like. So, yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you guys very much. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. And now, back to the show. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Emily Settle. Emily is an associate editor at Swoon Reads and Five Will and Friends, which are both imprints of Macmillan. Emily, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. We're really excited. We've been on a real agent and editor kick lately, and uh, we're excited to have you on board and to hear about what you do. Tell us, my first question is always, where are you in the world? Are you in New York City? I, I live in Brooklyn, okay. um, and I work in Manhattan. 
And how important is your location being in Brooklyn, working in Manhattan? Is that to, you know, your role as an editor and being in that industry? Well, I mean, when if you're talking about traditional publishing, most of it does exist in New York or London. <laughs> but um, so living in New York, at least right now, is pretty important depending on what kind of publishing you want to do and what facet of it you want to work in. Um, so for me personally, yeah, I had to move here. And speaking of moving here, before we dive into what you do and what your role is and what it means to be an editor, how did you get to this point? Where did you grow up? How did you decide to move to New York? And how did you work your way up to this position? Yeah, I actually kind of have a funny, a funny backstory. <laughs> I got into publishing in a little bit of a weird way. Um, so I did, I did grow up in um, upstate New York, just north of it near the Poughkeepsie area. So not too far away, but um, I actually pursued journalism in undergrad. So book publishing was not on my radar at all in high school or even college. And what I ended up doing was I found out during my journalism studies that I had a bit of a knack for copy editing specifically. So after college, I got a job as a copy editor for a newspaper. And I kind of found out on day three that I really didn't like it, <laughs> which is a bit of a scary thing to realize <laughs> after you just spent time in college studying something. But um, I stuck it out for two years. I figured, you know, I'm going to give it time, see if it works. And if it still is not for me, I can try something else, maybe get a master's degree. So that's what I did. I ended up coming back home to New York and I was really fortunate at the time. My parents still lived within commuting distance of the city. So I was able to live at home and have a couple random part-time jobs while I got my master's in publishing from Pace University. And during that time, I it was part of the program requirements to get an internship in the publishing industry. So I ended up interning for Spoon Reads and fell in love with it. And they haven't been able to get rid of me since. Basically, I got, after I was an intern, I got hired on as an administrative assistant to the publisher, who's uh, Jean Philo over there. She's awesome. And from there, I just kind of kept working hard and taking on more work and projects. And I started to be able to edit things on my own. And that it kind of helped me grow into first an assistant editor and um, now an associate editor. And I've been there for almost five years now. So you just mentioned that you're an associate editor. What does it mean to be an associate editor? You also work for both Swoon Reads and Fiewell and Friends. How does that work? How do you balance between? Kind of just walk us through what all that means. So Swoon Reads is actually an imprint within an imprint. It's, a, it's technically an imprint of Fiewell and Friends. It basically, each imprint kind of has a different, often has a different specialty, at least in the children's group where I work. You, we have First Second, which is our graphic novel imprint. We have Roaring Brook and FSG, Books for Young Readers. They kind of have their own style. So for Swoon Reads, we are actually a kind of an untraditional traditional publisher because our imprint is based on our website, and anyone can upload their YA manuscript and get feedback from our community of readers and writers and potentially get selected for print publication with us. So, and then whereas File and Friends is more of your traditional publishing imprint where we get submissions from agents and kind of go about it a little differently. So it's just, I work for, I work for both of them in that I edit books for both of them. And I do a lot of extra stuff for Swoon, like running their blog 
and coordinating uh, admin work like that. So yeah, it's just kind of a different, each imprint has their own different little flavor. And I mean, it, the funny thing is it, it works differently at every publisher. <laughs> like being an associate editor where I am might mean being an associate editor at a different house might mean something completely different. So there's really no one, there's no set of hard and fast rules for publishing, which is kind of fun. And what makes you specifically different from any other editor? Is there a particular taste or genre or type of writing or author you're looking for that makes you different than, say, another associate editor? Sure, sure. Another thing that, at least this is how I feel, how it makes publishing so fun is uh, every editor has their own taste and they have their own things that they're looking for and things that are important to them in a writer or in a book. So that's how we try to get different projects from each other. Me personally, I dabble in all the different age groups in the children's group. Um, I do help with picture books in middle grade, but for the most part, I acquire YA and fiction. And I tend to gravitate towards plot-driven, exciting, cinematic, speculative fiction. So your sci-fi, fantasy, paranormal, all the genre stuff. And I also am a huge historical fiction nerd. (laughs) I've been doing a lot of that recently. Super hungry for it at the moment. Especially historical fiction that kind of shows us a time period or people that you know, we haven't really heard of before or haven't heard from, haven't really been featured in the history books. That really gets me. I love that because I'm a huge history nerd too. <laughs> as far as being an editor, what are the skills that you possess that make for a good editor? What are the things that you have that maybe have led to your success so far as an editor? I actually believe that everybody is a little bit of an editor just because if you really drill down to it, being an editor is a lot like just knowing what you like and don't like, which everyone does. The only difference is for book editors, we have to be able to identify why we don't like something or like something. And in the cases of not sure this is working, you know, um, we have to be able to then articulate to the writer how to fix it, (laughs) which is where the more difficult part is. So I think that's, that's basically all you need to be an editor is you have to be able to, which I mean, it's a tall order, but you have to be able to identify what like any weak parts of a book and fix it. And then as far as the process for which a book gets from a writer's hands to your hands, obviously it goes through an agent. Usually is that the case for you? I know sometimes different houses, there's different rules. Walk us through that process and how a book gets to you. Well, the funny thing is, so because I work for Philo and Friends and for Soon Read, even, even then, between those two, the process is totally different. So um, yeah, Philo and Friends is your traditional process. Like you said, it goes, the writer writes a book, writer gets a literary agent. The agent will often do a pass or two uh, with the author, hopefully, <laughs> where they <laughs> give them notes and have them rewrite a little bit. And then the agent will then go out and pitch the book to editors and Agents are great that they have a kind of a network of editors that they know. They keep they keep track of the specific things we're looking for, specific genres, specific themes, all that great stuff. And then they work to get that writer a book deal. But uh, for Swoon Reads, uh, because it's based on our website, we do not require people to be uh, what we call solicited, meaning they have an agent. Anyone can just toss their YA manuscript on our website. And then we use the community's feedback through ratings and comments 
to kind of judge what people are really reacting to. And so the, the stuff that kind of bubbles to the top over the course of one of our selection seasons is what we then as editors read into and choose to publish based on that. And is that process a unique process? Do any other publishing houses do that style of almost um, submission-based and review-based, rating-based submissions? As far as I know, we're the only one, <laughs> especially in the traditional publishing house sense. You know, you, you maybe smaller, I think there are a few smaller indie presses that uh, writers can go to. There are certainly vanity presses that writers can go to where they basically just pay someone to make their book. But when it comes to, you know, the big five publishing houses in New York, the the traditional places that you think of, um, no, we're pretty, we're pretty unique. Most everyone requires submissions to be solicited these days. As far as um, discovering books, obviously, as you mentioned, usually the agent is submitting a pitch to you. But do you ever go out and say, having heard about an author that maybe had a successful self-published book, do you ever reach out to them directly and kind of find authors for yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's not as common, but I've done it a couple times um, where those are often called, um, those are usually in the context of IP projects. Basically, that is when the idea actually comes from the publisher. They decide, hey, we want this specific book. And then, so we'll put that together and then we will go find a writer to do it, basically. So I have done that before where I have thought of this, I want this specific project and I'm going to go find a writer to do it. So that does happen. As far as the query letter process, I know that always happens between the author and the agent directly, but I know that editors are friendly with agents. Have you heard from agents what the secret to writing a good query letter is? And can you tell us where should a manuscript be at before they submit to an agent? Any words of wisdom for writers who are at that phase? I would suggest um, for when you're when you're ready to go looking for agents is have your manuscript be at the level that you can best make it yourself. There might be still a few weak patches that you feel aren't quite as good as they could be, but if you need help and you can't do it yourself, I mean, that's what the agent and editor is for. So I would say just get it to the best possible place you can. And then also this is at the stage before you get your agent, this is where critique partners are super helpful. I highly recommend having at least one critique partner. And for anyone who doesn't know what that is, your critique partner is basically just, it doesn't have to be another writer. It can honestly be, you know, a sister or a friend or just any other person you're close to who kind of beta reads your book for you. They take a first look at it. They give you notes on just how they feel. That can be super valuable for a writer, especially one who's just starting out. So definitely get a critique partner. That'd be my number one note. The next one. So what now you've gotten to the point where you are ready to start querying agents. Um, the number one thing that I hear agents talk about is do your research because different, just like editors, different agents are looking for different books. So if you send out a query letter to an agent who's, you know, if it's a, if you wrote a adult nonfiction title about the civil war or something, there's no point in querying an agent who only does picture books. You'd be surprised. That sounds like a really obvious thing, but you'd be surprised how often the agents I know, you know, either tweet or talk about, you know, getting a most ridiculous query for something that they 
they spell their either they spell the agent's name wrong or they send them something that is clearly not on their wish list, which are typically found on the agency's website. So that would be that. Do your research. <laughs> <laughs> and always helpful to be able to um it's usually helpful to be able to compare your manuscript to something that the agent has worked on recently or before, because that shows that you're aware of their taste and you you genuinely think that your book is the same. Another, and I would say at least one other rule of thumb is um, for uh, comparative comp titles, comparative titles, don't immediately, don't just jump to, you know, the really popular stuff. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, Harry Potter. People, exactly, yeah. exactly. Because, and I mean, it, it could be totally true. I mean, if you have a book where it takes place at a magic school, it could be really like it's Hogwarts. Sure, I mean that's fine, but you want to be able to compare your book to sometimes more reasonable <laughs> comp titles. Um, because if you just kind of throw out the really popular stuff, that doesn't necessarily, even if it's true, that doesn't necessarily tell the agent that you're aware of what's in the market and what else has been published recently and what kind of reader would want your book. If you're able to show them that, um, they'll be much more keen to look at your, your samples. And similarly, when an agent submits a pitch for manuscript, where should that be at that point? I imagine obviously it's further along. Is there a secret to that query to you? For the writer's side, not not, not really. Uh, the agent will be the one who kind of decides when a manuscript is ready. I have most agents that I know will do at least one revision with the writer. That's just them before they talk to editors. I personally think the best agents do that. <laughs> so that's mostly up to the agent. And then the pitch letter from an agent to an editor is basically the query letter again, um, but just kind of more refined and told through refined through the agent's industry experience. And yeah, there, there, I, I honestly, since I don't see writer query letters very often, but I would, I would assume the agents are a little more correct. (laughs) 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 Not to put down anybody, but, uh, but yeah. As far as when you do get those pitches, can you walk us through when you receive them, what goes through your mind when you receive them and when you know, you've got something that you're interested in and, Tell us what, when you get an idea that you're really excited about, what do those look like? I don't know if there's a secret to it. I honestly, when I get the, those emails, you know, the pitch always has things like the synopsis, maybe a short bio of the author, comp titles, this book will make you feel these things. Uh, and it's kind of a combination of all of it that really gets me interested. It's usually uh, the what we call the elevator pitch. An agent will often include in their query letter. It'll be it's something like, "Oh, I don't know. It's it's Jason Bourne, but in high school, and <laughs> there's zombies. I don't know." That's kind of what you would. That's kind of an example of a random elevator pitch. Um, and so, if that kind of like one liner really is like makes me sit up and go, "Ooh," then <laughs> that's definitely something I'm going to pay attention to. And that's, that tends to, it's really, you know, it's a little hit or miss. Sometimes I'll send, uh, I'll get a query, I'll get a pitch from an agent that, you know, technically checks the boxes that I have. Maybe it's like a YA historical or something. But if it doesn't have that X factor that makes me sit up and pay attention and decide this is what I want to read, like instead of the hundred other books that I have at my disposal, then, um, but yeah, it's it's kind of an X-Factor thing. 
As far as the climate right now, as far as things that are successful or trending, are there any genres or ideas or concepts that you would suggest to any uh, writers who are thinking about <laughs> starting a story now that they should definitely not do? Are there things that you're just seeing way too much of or that you would suggest uh, not pursuing? I I don't think I would... I don't think I would warn an, a writer off of anything necessarily. Um, the, I, if anything, I would say don't don't write to the trend. That's the one thing. But don't, as in, don't write to the trend because it's a trend. Um, but I mean, if you have a if you have a story in your in your mind that you just have to write and you you have to write it and it has to come out, then write that book. I don't honestly really care what the genre is or what the trends are saying. Cause if you're writing something that you truly care about, it's going to be special regardless of what is and isn't working right now. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favourite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favourite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickr and Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre, and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. And when you decide that you have found a story that you really want to bring to life. What does the follow-up look like, you know, whether that's reaching out to the agent, reaching out to the author to let them know, and then what's the deal look like? How do you structure that? And, you know, do they get money up front? What does a writer have to look forward to when they get a deal with a publishing house? Yeah, absolutely. So if I read a submission and decide I want to acquire it, well, first I have to get permission. <laughs> right. So, you know, we all got bosses. So first I have to talk to my publisher. Um, she makes all the editorial decisions for our imprint. So I, I pitch, I basically then go pitch the book to her. The funny publishing, publishing books is just constant pitching. <laughs> Someone is constantly pitching. So I go and pitch this book that I want to acquire to my boss. She tells me yes or no. And if she says I can go for it, then I have to do something called an acquisitions meeting. So basically our acquisitions board in the children's group, at least at Macmillan, how it works is because it also varies a little bit from house to house. How it works at the, the Macmillan children's group is we have this giant meeting once a week and it's got, you know, our exec team, our publicity team, our marketing team, like pretty much everyone is there. 
and the editor makes a presentation about what the book is and you know how they see it how they envision it in the market how they think of what what books they would comp it to and the whole group has a discussion you know what can we do for this book is it is it worth the investment is it is the read good all those great things and then and then if we get a green light there then i can then go to the agent and say yay we all love your book and we want to buy it can we we will offer you this and then then we make the offer now the offer typically goes over email um, and it will have all the terms, all the big terms laid out for the contract, advance, royalty rates, uh, subright splits if applicable, the territory one offer, there's a lot of different details that go into it. As for the deal itself, um, typically, yes, authors do get money up front. Most advances, regardless of how big they are, most advances will have a, they're all split into different installments which basically means, you know, you might get, you'll get some of your money when the contract is signed, and then you'll get some of your money when the book is completely finished and sent to copy editing. When you send it to copy editing, that's typically seen as when a book is done. And then it depends on the advance and how it's broken up, whether or not there's more to that, but on signing and on what we call delivery and acceptance, that's the typical setup is half and half. And when you start working together with the author, what does that look like? Are you still working with the agent anymore? Are you then, I assume, obviously, you're, you're moving forward to continue on the process the agent started of, you know, revising the book and going through and providing notes. What does that look like? And how long does that process go on for? Yeah, that depends on the book. It depends on the book and the author and how involved the agent is also kind of usually depends on the agent. I'm always very willing to have, at this point, agents typically um, back off from the editorial part of it and they kind of jump into more helping with like the marketing and the publicity of a book. But I mean, it depends on their different style. I'm always happy to keep an agent copied on all my communications with an author if they want. And yeah, so they, I basically take the reins on the editorial process from there. It depends on a, on a book, how, on each book, how how many drafts it'll need or what it needs. Um, they're all different, which makes my job, keeps my job interesting. So it could be, it could be a really big picture. It could be a really big picture edit the first time where I send them a letter, you know, saying, Hey, in this, you know, we need, we need to fix the world building or this one character is not working. We really need to look at them or it could be, honestly, it could be anything. (laughs) But I tend to start with really big picture stuff and basically with each draft to kind of narrow the focus down until we're going, you know, little edits line by line, like this word isn't quite working or maybe, maybe move this paragraph down a couple lines. So it'll really hit harder. It really, it kind of gets more, it gets narrower and narrower as the editing process goes on. And then eventually it'll we'll decide it's, it's ready to go. It's ready for copy editing and then we'll send it off. As far as the, you know, notes that you're giving, what do they look like? And then what do the timeframes look like? How long is the deadline? And what are your thoughts on meeting deadlines? Again, it depends on when a book is, is uh, scheduled for. So for instance, most, most books are scheduled, I would say at least two years. They're probably from the point where we acquire a book, it's probably going to be about another two years until it actually hits the shelves. <laughs> <laughs> we 
which was one of the things that surprised me the most when I first started in publishing was how long it took. Because, <laughs> you know, it's so funny to watch, you know, a random TV show that'll show publishing and it's like they acquire the book and then a week later it's on the bestseller list. <laughs> like, that's right. not how it works. <laughs> and a lot of work by a lot of people. Um, it really takes a village. But anyway, so yeah, my uh, like I was saying before how my notes kind of start with big pictures. Um, pretty much all my first drafts, that, uh, edits that I give to an author will start with an editorial letter. It's like it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's a it's a whole word document full of just notes about, you know, the big stuff that we need to fix first, whether that's a plot issue or a character issue, pacing, all that great stuff. And honestly, those can be anywhere from two pages long to 10 pages long. <laughs> it really depends on how much work a book needs. And as far as the deadline side of things, how long does that take usually? And are people late often? Well, I mean, a lot the funny, of course, things, a lot of things change. Um, you know, we schedule a book for a certain general time frame, and then it it might turn out that you know we need, we decide to move it a season to give either to give the author more time, or maybe we realize that it'd be much better suited to go into this promotional period for retailers. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why a book might move. It could also certainly be you know if my as an editor, if my workload is really huge and I'm just having to kind of delay things a little bit, then it's not so bad. The deadlines are not as, um, they're a little more fluid. We do set a deadline in the contract, but I always, I always assure my authors, like, if we need more time, we will give you more time. It's okay. I just always advocate for my authors to be super vocal with me and honest and just tell me what they need in terms of, in terms of timing. Because I mean, obviously I don't, I don't want to put out a book that they're not proud of and we want to make sure it's as best, as good as it can be. So for the deadline things, sure, they get missed all the time. <laughs> but as long as the, the author and the editor and the agent, everyone involved, as long as they stay in communication and just do their, like genuinely work hard to meet all the deadlines we can, it'll all turn out fine. <laughs> and what can writers do when they're working with you to help you? What can they do uh, or what from your experience has been helpful? And what are things that maybe writers should not do? There are certainly many different personalities in publishing, both on both sides, both authors and editors. I personally like to see myself as the writer's co-pilot. They're the ones flying the ship. <laughs> I'm just the one, I'm the one pushing all the buttons. So I always try to make sure that an author still feels like it's, it's their book and it's their baby. But at the same time, it's really helpful when an author understands that once they've once they've committed to like a traditional publishing deal, it becomes a bit of a team project. Um, it's important to be a team player, and whether that it's okay to and I always tell the authors like it's okay to stick to your guns. If there's a certain part of your book that you feel super strongly about, just tell me. <laughs> and if something is if I'm trying to edit something and it's not working, and I'm suggesting changes that you think is hurting something or is changing your book, then I, I, we can think of something else. I am totally open to collaborating with my authors and making sure that any changes we make or any fixes we make is still staying true to what they originally envisioned for their book. But it is definitely helpful when an author is open to other people's feedback and open to kind of occasionally deviating from what they 
originally thought a book would be, but that that really depends on the author. And as far as once you get the project to the finish line, so to speak, how do you know it's finished? How do you know it's ready to be published? What's the approval process like? I mentioned copy editing before. That is typically when an editor sends a book to copy editing, that is considered, that's basically when the author is generally done. So, because copy, basically, I will have gone through the revision process with the writer. My notes will have gotten smaller and smaller, and they'll have gotten, there'll be fewer of them, (laughs) hopefully. And basically, after I get past that, what's called line editing stage, where I'm going like sentence by sentence and tweaking words here or erasing a sentence here. Once that's done, that's generally when I'm considered the brunt of my job is done. But then a book goes off to copy editing and that's a whole new reader who's specifically looking for really your nitty gritty kind of grammar things, your typos, any, any um, continuity issues, things like that. But even after that, there's still like two stages of proofreading that it goes through. (laughs) Throughout this whole thing, even after an author is done, you know, there's still people reading it and still making like last polishes and fixes and making sure everything is totally done. Yeah, it's funny how after after we're done, it's really only the halfway point. (laughs) And the author does get approval on that thing. They'll be, I always send my authors their copy edits so they can make any suggestions or answer any questions. And I give them the chance to give me any last changes at the, at the proofread stage, sometimes twice. Most authors can't bear to the sight of their own book after the first time. <laughs> <laughs> they just say, please don't make me read this again. <laughs> so um, yeah, after that, once all the proofreading is done, um, the book is typeset. It's made into advanced reader copies or ARCs. And from there, then we kind of go into promotion mode and, you know, marketing, we start having our marketing plans and our publicity team, a publicist is assigned to the book and they start making plans and we start looking outward a little more. We look out into the the market and say, okay, we have this book. It's awesome. Who's going to read it? (laughs) So yeah, it's kind of, that's kind of, I think it's basically the whole process. What are the expectations for a successful book in today's, you know, age. What makes a book successful? What makes it not successful? What's the best case scenario? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of factors. There's a lot of factors that can deem a book successful. There's plenty of books and authors who have very successful careers that have, you know, never been on the bestseller list or aren't necessarily you know, sent on nationwide tours or anything like that. It's totally, it's very, we kind of, kind of vary our approach, but on a book by book basis in general, typically you could say, uh, you judge a book, book success by whether or not it's earned out its advance. But I mean, that's a very publisher focused perspective. I think our higher ups consider a book to be successful when basically the money we paid for it is proved to have been worth it (laughs) or it basically it earns back the money that we paid for it plus some and then the author gets royalties and further money if they've what we call earned out which means we've sold enough copies of the book to kind of pay back the advance money that we paid the author already but i mean we've had books that we consider a success that haven't necessarily earned out their advance yet and we maybe have books that 
I don't, I don't know there's, there's, it's really a lot of, it's kind of a lot of different factors. I think writers also, authors have a different sense of what they consider their book being successful or not. And I would hope that they would, I, I hope that everyone feels a sense of success because it's a big deal to get your book published. You had to get through a lot of a, a huge crowd to get there. So describe the feeling that you get when you go to a bookstore and you see a book that you edited. <laughs> Oh, I immediately tear it off the shelf and do a happy dance and shove it at the first person who looks at it. <laughs> Basically my reaction. Um, I'm a huge, I feel, always feel like I'm like number one fan, kind of almost like a mom to each book that I, <laughs> each book that I edit. I just, I love seeing them out in the wild. I love seeing them on shelves. I love seeing them on, you know, random, you know, end of year lists or, I don't know, best historical YA lists or whatever. Um, just anywhere. If I see a random tweet from a reader being like, oh, this book was so good. I'm going to be like, I know, it's so great. <laughs> it's just so it's super exciting to be a part of the whole process. And I just get I just get so excited for my authors whenever good things happen to them. <laughs> Can you tell us about the bestsellers lists? We've talked briefly about them. But number one, why is the uh, New York Times bestsellers list such a staple list that people hold to be in such high regard and then you know i know there's the amazon list can you walk us through the lists and what do they mean i would if i could <laughs> no it's great it's uh, the lists are um each list has different criteria um as for why the new york times list is considered to be kind of the biggest feather you could have in your author hat honestly i think that part is mostly just tradition it's it's been around so long and it's but they have their like they have an algorithm they have their own algorithm and it's different from the publisher's weekly bestseller list and that's different from the USA Today bestseller list and I don't know there's just a certain um, for the New York Times list there's just a certain kind of perceived status I guess that I mean it's a big deal don't get me wrong it is a big deal if your book gets that list but I mean it's the way their algorithm works you never know I mean I would say any writer who maybe feels any author who feels a little disappointed that their book hasn't hit the list, I would say do not be disappointed. It's okay. <laughs> there are so many great books that never end up on the list at all. So it's just, I think it's just one, one other potential laurel basically. But yeah, really, it really depends. And of course, again, you know, it's got nothing to do with, it's all subjective. So, and what people want to read and, what does well can sometimes be very subjective. So I wish I could explain the list better, but honestly, <laughs> no, well, they great. also do keep it a little close to the vest. Like <laughs> I'm sure their algorithms are proprietary. <laughs> Absolutely. As far as once the book is out and you complete the process of working with that author on that book, what is your next steps? I'm assuming you're working on a bunch of other books and with a bunch of other authors all at once. So I'm assuming you're kind of going back into the process. Are you continuing to work with the same authors again? Or is that Absolutely. dependent on, you know, where, where does that stand? Are you starting to think, oh, maybe we'll do a follow-up to this book? Yeah, um, absolutely. I would say most of my most of my authors, I, I, I end up, you know, working just going right into the next book um, if they if they want to keep going. <laughs> and actually, uh, a one of the more, I think, unique styles of at least where the imprints that I work at is that we are, we're very committed to kind of the long-term relationship with an author. 
it is very common that we'll buy two books from an author, you know, even though they just wrote the one, we'll often give them a two book deal saying like, Hey, here, we'll buy this book and the next one you write. That's actually a pretty a relatively common thing that we like to do because we really like to, it really helps. Um, if an author is going to have a follow-up book, whether it's a sequel or completely unrelated, um, it's really helpful to have them on a, a book a year schedule. Um, you know, when they have a book coming out, one book each year because of how retailers think and how retailers, uh, you know, make their choices. It's just better. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> it's not like a bad thing if, if, if an author can't churn out a book a year, but um, it can sometimes help. And then as far as we know what's next for the writer, but what about you? What's the end goal uh, for you in the long run? Are you obviously, I assume, working your way up the ranks to senior editor roles and these kind of things? Are you asking me about my five-year plan? Yes, that's exactly <laughs> the question. <laughs> yeah, my my goal for the long run is just to acquire as many awesome books as possible, and uh, you know, publish as many, make the publishing dreams of as many awesome authors as possible come true. And I'm definitely happy. Um, I would love to keep climbing a little bit and have a big room for a bigger list. And because basically when you're more senior, you have more books on your list, you have a little more autonomy, you have, you know, a little more power, I guess. So that's the goal. Me personally, my one of my um, top goals for my own list in my own career is to really look for those voices that haven't traditionally been heard enough, um, whether that's, you know, authors of color or or queer authors or anything, anyone who's been marginalized, I'm really, I'm really committing myself to try to find, find them <laughs> because I just think those voices are so important and, and the world is finally hopefully ready to hear them and give them a fair shot. And that's, that's really important to me. Are you ready for something we call a series of seemingly random questions? Absolutely. <laughs> the first question is, in your Twitter bio, you list Gryffindor, Scorpio, Ranger, not, not a time traveler. Can you fill us in on what all that means? Well, I am. Well, the first couple are pretty <laughs> self-explanatory. I took, I'm a, I'm a certified, a Pottermore certified Gryffindor. <laughs> I actually had a bit of an identity crisis there because my whole life growing, I grew up with Harry Potter. So uh, my whole life, I always thought I was a Ravenclaw because I've always been such a nerd. But then I took the test and I just kept coming up Gryffindor. <laughs> so that was a little bit of an identity crisis. But I'm, I'm very cool with it now. I love it now. <laughs> <laughs> and now the people who know me best are like, oh, yeah, you're a total Gryffindor. I don't know why you ever thought you were Ravenclaw. But um, anyway, next one. Let's see. Scorpio, that's just my Zodiac sign. Um, it's actually... I don't know how into astrology you are, but everyone has a, a sun sign, a which is the one that you pretty much almost everyone knows. That's like your main one. But you also have a moon sign and an ascending sign. And I have Scorpio as both my sun and moon sign, which basically means I'm a bit of a character, I guess. I don't know. It's pretty funny. But um, so yeah, I'm a Scorpio uh, in every sense of the word. And Ranger, that is my, that's my D&D class, my Dungeons and Dragons nice. class of choice. <laughs> Basically, picture Legolas from, from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> you basically got a ranger. As for the 
<laughs> this part's just being being silly, but not not a time traveler. Mm, well, I'm not. My current self isn't a time traveler, but maybe I will be in the future. <laughs> I don't know. So I'm not. I'm not not a time traveler. So that's just that's just me being a dork. <laughs> Is that inspired by any sort of book about time traveling, or are you a fan of time traveling fiction? You know, of of anything, it's probably mostly inspired by Doctor Who. <laughs> nice. The next question. What are the pros and cons of self-publishing? Obviously, we talked a lot about the traditional side of publishing, but would you suggest it for aspiring writers? You know, it really depends. Um, That is something, that's a great question, and I get it a lot. You know, some friends who are like, no, does self-publishing, like, eat into your industry, or does e-books, you know, are they hurting print? And the answer is honestly, no. It's really, it's really different depending on what author, like, it really depends on the author. Some people... Are just flourish in self-publishing. Um, I mean, you got like Abby Glines and Hugh Howie, people who, you know, honestly hit bestseller lists and they have great careers and they all started in self-publishing. That's awesome. And then there's, but some authors, you know, whether it's because you have a day job or you have kids or I don't know, whatever, what you have a lot of time on your plate. If you, you know, need help from, if you can't necessarily if you don't have the time or the funds to kind of do your own marketing or really find a way to break through all the noise, then if you, you, it could be really beneficial to go the traditional route because in that case, you have an agent, you have an editor, you have publicity and marketing teams kind of helping you with that kind of stuff. And plus, you know, you get distribution, uh, you get those distribution channels from traditional routes that are a little harder to break into on your own. But I mean, people do it. It's really, it really depends on your needs as an author and you know what you want out of your publishing experience. Some people really do love having complete creative control over their work and I think that's awesome. If you can do all that by yourself. You don't need me. <laughs> but um I don't know it that's kind of like a it's kind of a case by case basis honestly. My next question if you could choose to work with any author and take them to any fast food restaurant. Which <laughs> author, which restaurant, and why? Hmm. <laughs> you know, as weird as this sounds, I feel like I would love to take Jane Austen to like a McDonald's and just watch her mind get blown. <laughs> Jane Austen McDonald's. What would you order? <laughs> just because I'm, I'm a Jane I just think that would be very, I think it would be pretty funny. The next question, if you could be any of the characters that you've worked on, which would you choose and why? Ooh, that's tough. Um, oh gosh, that's so difficult. I would, I would say that I would love to be. Oh my! Oh, so many. I work on so many books that have like, for traumatic things happen to their characters. So I'm like scared to pick any of them. <laughs> I would probably pick. Um, I would probably pick Abby from. It's from a book called The Supervillain and Me by Daniel Vanis. And it's basically a story about a girl named Abby who um, she uh, is a normal teenage girl, but she lives in a world where superheroes are a thing. And her big brother is actually basically the Superman of their city. Um, so she's always kind of lived in his shadow and, you know, just done her own thing um, and kind of rolled her eyes at all this superhero nonsense. And then she kind of ends up falling in with a so-called supervillain. Um, who may not be as bad as everyone thinks he is. And 
kind of, you know, also falls in love. It's really, it's a really fun, funny, fun book. And I love how Abby manages to kick butt without superpowers. Next question. If you could suggest a question to one of our upcoming writer guests, what would you ask them? One of your writer guests. Hmm. Uh, I would ask them, how do you find time to write (laughs) with all of the busy busyness of the world happening? I think that's one of the biggest challenges for writers is just honestly finding the time. (laughs) Normally we would then ask you that question. Although in this (laughs) case, we'll ask you, do you write? Do you have aspirations to be an author yourself? We've actually interviewed a couple uh, agents and editors who are also authors. You know, I have dabbled. (laughs) I do. The funny thing is I feel like I do most of my writing now just as extra fun for, you know, Dungeons and Dragons campaigns, (laughs) either because I'm writing a character backstory or writing an adventure to send my friends on. Um, That's most of the writing I do. And actually, I would... (laughs) <laughs> I would probably recommend if any any writer is looking for a non-writing specific hobby, give Dungeons and Dragons a try. It's a really creative, fun outlet that honestly you still you still end up, you know, doing character development and you still do world building and you can go on adventures, but you don't necessarily have to be staring at the screen <laughs> writing. If you could choose one learning or insight from your career to pass along to aspiring writers, what would you say? I would say don't hold yourself to a timeline for success, if that makes sense. So I know we always hear about, you always hear about like the huge, like six, seven figure deals that a 20 year old has gotten for their fantasy trilogy or something like that. And, or you hear, you really, you, you hear more about like this, the really like meteoric successes and you hear a lot less about like really the quiet ones. And, but there's so many more of those. And I think a lot of writers feel feel pressure to, you know, get a book published, you know, before they have a family or before they're too busy with their job or before they're 30 or for whatever reason. It's different for everyone. But I got to tell you, I've I've acquired books from an author who was 18 and I have acquired books from an author who didn't publish her first book until she was in her 60s. It's there's just no timeline for it. You can you can write your entire life and you know your success will find you. It's when it's right. It's not it's not the same for everybody. Um so that's I would definitely want a writer to understand that. Is that their your story is different, your life is different, it'll your timeline does not have to match anyone else's. Love it. The last question. We're gonna require a drum roll here. Harry, will you please hand me the envelope? <laughs> I'm now opening the envelope. The suspense is killing me. (laughs) Question is, did you have fun with us today? Oh my gosh, I had so much fun. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Did you want to plug any projects that either you're working on, you have worked on, anything you want to shout out? I would just, if you are a fan, if you're a fan of YA fiction, you should definitely check out Spoon Reads, whether you're a writer or a reader. We got space for everybody. And there's lots of writing advice and um, book recommendations on our blog, which is up daily. Give us a shout. Did you want to shout out your Twitter handle? Sure. Yep. My Twitter handle is Emmy Calico. That's E-M-I-C-A-L-I-C-O. Calico like my cat. (laughs) Feel free to follow me. I'm happy to answer questions about publishing or writing anytime. 
Well, thank you, Emily. We really appreciate your insights, your time. Thanks for taking us uh, on a journey through the process of editing. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.